Romania Wants You, today, Friday, February 1st, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. A blast rocks the U.S. Embassy in Turkey. Also, we remember the life and work of French war photographer Rémy Oshlik. Plus, a brewing dispute between Romania and Britain. One Romanian decides it's time to hit the Brits where it hurts. Our draft beer is less expensive than your bottled water. Ouch. And speaking of beer, rural Irish pubs are hurting financially, so some pub owners say it's time for Ireland to loosen its laws on drunk driving. You can't drink and drive. You're relying on somebody else to get you to the pub and from the pub. And people feel like, you know, why bother? Stay at home. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. France's president is preparing to visit Mali tomorrow after French troops helped oust al-Qaeda-linked militants from Mali's north. The French claim the jihadists are in disarray and that their three-week campaign has been successful. But human rights groups say it's come at a cost. They say the French-led offensive has led to civilian deaths and to military reprisals by Malian forces. The CBC's Laura Lynch reports from Bamako. There is little for Umu Salsek to do these days but sit and talk with the people who once worked for her far away from this home in Bamako. She is the mayor of Gundam, a town of 16,000 people near Timbuktu. And as the only female mayor in all of northern Mali, she was a particularly tempting target when the Islamists came to town. One day last April, they showed up at her door threatening her children. They took everything in my house, ransacked it. It was exactly three days later that I left, Sex says. What's followed, she says, was chaos and violence. In December, Sex urged President Obama to intervene in an article in the New York Times. But it was the French who came to the rescue of their former colony three weeks ago. And while others might bristle at a French president coming to claim victory, Sec has no problem with it because she says she appreciates what France did. If France recognized that we needed help because we couldn't defeat the terrorists on our own, that our army was incapable, thank God they were right, Sec says. The French president's visit may be overshadowed by a report released today by Amnesty International. It lists a host of human rights violations, civilians killed in a joint French-Malian airstrike, something the French deny, Malian soldiers committing extrajudicial killings of other civilians based on their ethnicity. In one case, bodies were dumped in a well. The Malian army denies engaging in reprisals. But there's plenty of violations to go around. Amnesty's Mali director, Salum Traore, says the Islamists recruited child soldiers then fed them drugs that turned them into killing machines. When they eat what they give them to eat and drink, then they, they would see people just like very big dogs. And they are very crazy. They just want to kill these people, these, these dogs. Traore can't quite grasp what's happened in his nation in the past months and weeks with killings on both sides. And he says most Malians can't either. Very, very surprised because our culture is different. I didn't think that uh, Malian people 
can really do things like this. We have very difficulties to explain people that that has happened. People don't believe. People don't believe. But in fact, it really, really happened. It may not come as a surprise to Mohamed Agosare, a Tuareg who runs a cultural center in Bamako. He says many minority Tuaregs have left the south fearing reprisals for the actions of the rebels in the north. The Tuareg ont peur parce que la plupart des populations, de la population. The Tuareg people are afraid, he says, because most Malians never understood that the Tuaregs aren't all the same, they aren't all rebels. Most are tired of war, they don't want it. Most Malians may be tired of war as well, but there are disturbing signs that while this military campaign may have run the jihadists out of town, it's also led to more violence, more suspicion, and more division in this troubled nation. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Bamako, Mali. Laura sent along pictures from the streets of Bamako and gives her impressions of the place in a new blog post. It's all at theworld.org. It's been about two weeks since Islamic militants launched an attack in neighboring Algeria. They claimed it was retaliation for the French intervention in Mali. They seized a large gas facility, as you recall, and took hundreds of local and foreign workers hostage. Algerian government forces immediately launched an offensive against the militants. In the ensuing violence, some 37 hostages died. The BBC's Richard Galpin went to the site yesterday. He's back in Algiers, and he was among the first Western journalists to visit the facility since the hostage crisis. Uh, Richard, tell us, first of all, what does it look like right now? Well, there's still, you can see the evidence uh, of the fighting which took place there. Um, the accommodation block, the big chunks of concrete missing, uh, which have been hit by shrapnel uh, and by heavy caliber weapons. And then we also went to the um, main gas compressing facility. And there you could, again, see damage. There's fire damage, which apparently was caused by an explosion in which a lot of hostages were killed. A bomb deliberately detonated by the militants to kill a group of hostages who'd been chained or strapped uh, to the metal structure there. So, Richard, some people have been pointing to the possibility of this attack by these militants on the gas plant as being an inside job. A lot of speculation around that. What is the evidence? Well, I mean, I think there's quite a bit of evidence. Uh, We spoke to the man who's a general manager, actually, from the Algerian oil company, who was one of the first people to be caught by uh, the militants when they attacked the accommodation block. And he said that they knew there was a VIP area and they got just slightly confused about exactly where it was. And obviously under pressure, he had to reveal uh, the location. Another employee from BP who was also briefly taken hostage but managed to talk his way out uh, because he was Algerian, he also said the same thing to us, saying that uh, they knew exactly where they were going. They clearly had very, very good information. The other thing that people point to, but we're less sure about this, is that there was a meeting of senior executives, some of whom had flown in from abroad for a meeting about extending the plant. So some people point to this, that perhaps the timing was no coincidence. And there are also reports that the local employees had not been particularly carefully vetted. And one person who was employed at the plant was the brother of a leading radical jihadist, Islamist, who could have had links with the people who carried out the attack. Right. All very suspicious, but none of it fully confirmed yet, uh, as you pointed out. Now, one thing I think many uh, people who followed the hostage crisis might not realize is just the utter remoteness of this plant. How long did it take you to get there? Because I'm looking at a map of Algeria. It looks like from Algiers to southern Algeria, about New York City to Miami Beach, practically. 
it's a very, very long way. And I think if I remember correctly, the local journalist we've been working here with here was saying that it is uh, nearer to fly from Algiers to, to London than it is to go from Algiers to the far south of the country. Wow. So it gives you a size. It is a huge country. It's right in, in the heart of the Sahara, very, very remote area. It is sand dunes. It is sand and rock. Uh, and that is basically it. The BBC's Richard Galpin back in Algiers after having visited the gas facility attacked in southeast Algeria last month. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Another attack on a Western target today, this one in Turkey. I'm speaking of a suicide bomber who blew himself up in front of the U.S. Embassy in the Turkish capital, Ankara. Here's what one Turkish journalist told the BBC about what he saw. I was driving towards the embassy when there was this huge explosion, and I saw ambulances racing towards the embassy only about uh, five minutes after the blast, so there was a very quick response. Along with the bomber, a security guard was also killed in the blast. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack, but Turkey's prime minister is blaming an outlawed Turkish Marxist group. Howard Eisenstadt is a history professor at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, who has studied Turkey for 20 years. So what can you tell us about this Turkish Marxist group? It sounds very 1970s. Indeed it is. Its its roots go back to 1978, and they've been active on and off, along with a fair amount of factional fighting since then. They're very much in the tradition of the Red Army faction from the 70s and see themselves as sort of a heroic revolutionary front that's going to fight imperialism and radicalize the country in doing so. They don't have significant public support, but they do have the capacity to maintain fervent loyalty among a handful of followers and have carried out a number of spectacular attacks over the years, including a large number against American interests. The interior minister in Turkey didn't say why the government believes it it to be this particular domestic group behind the bombing, but if you had to fill in the blanks for us, why do you think they're getting the blame? Well, I don't think that the Turkish authorities are, are saying something that they don't have good evidence for. And the news reports that I've seen indicate that they've found the body, that they've identified the body as somebody who's been affiliated with them for a large number of years, who's been in prison for previous activities. So I suspect that it's the case. This is a group for whom, you know, 1978 has stood still. They haven't undergone tremendous ideological changes. They've, they've certainly had factional fighting, but that's, that's largely inside baseball. They see the United States as an imperial power. They see Turkey as a colonial power that must engage in a heroic national struggle against them. And they view the Turkish government as mere proxy for U.S. interests. How relevant are they to any Turks and and their political beliefs? Really not at all. You'll see some graffiti in Turkish European neighborhoods. But I think if we're talking about percentages of the Turkish public that have sympathy for them, we're talking about less than a percent. Mm. I got to say, I mean, there are several countries in Turkey's neighborhood where tension and pressure could possibly affect things in Ankara. I'm thinking Syria specifically. Uh, Do you believe you can exclude those connections to this bombing? I'm not an intelligence officer, so I I don't have direct knowledge. I would be shocked if either Syria or Iran was directly involved uh, or Hezbollah or Iran were directly involved in an attack in Turkey. When I was sort of making my own short list of possibilities in my mind this morning, 
they were all domestic. Howard Eisenstadt, history prof at St. Lawrence University. Thank you indeed. Thank you. A moment now to remember a veteran of South Africa's freedom struggle. Her name was Amina Kachalia. She was an Indian South African who fought against apartheid. Amina Kachalia died earlier this week. About a year ago, the world's Alex Galifant met her at her home in Johannesburg. Amina Kachalia was a link between two of the great civil rights leaders of the 20th century. Nelson Mandela, with whom she shared a close friendship for more than 60 years, and Gandhi, who, during the time he worked in South Africa, was friends with Amina Kachalia's father. Just as my father used to say, if you, if you don't fight injustice, it's like death in a sense. You accept death. Kachalia was a small, fine-boned lady. Delicate, you might say, if you'd seen her pouring tea from a china pot in her home. But she chose to fight injustice, working for racial and gender equality in South Africa. Along with many others, the country's apartheid government placed her under a banning order that restricted where she could go and who she could associate with. At the beginning of my banning order, I was just an activist, dishing out leaflets, organizing meetings, perhaps going to a women's organization. There was no harm in that. It was all done openly, and they still had the nerve to ban me. Kachalia's banning order lasted for years and took its toll. I couldn't even have other children over to come and spend some time with my kids on their birthday because it would have meant having a crowd over. So those little things in life, you had to get used to it. The political part of my life was never disturbed. We had to do things a little bit quietly and clandestinely, but we carried on with our work in spite of the banning. Amina Kachalia knew that work was necessary. It proved to be historic, but she didn't think of her life as an extraordinary one. It was just a life I was born into. We knew no other life for years and years and years, except apartheid, except the struggle. It's been a struggle for every one of us in this country. Amina Kachalia died yesterday in Johannesburg at the age of 82. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In case you haven't seen it yet, Volkswagen has rolled out a TV ad for the upcoming Super Bowl, and it's already generating some noise. The commercial shows an elevator crowded with white office workers when one of them speaks up in a Jamaican accent. Here it is. I hate Mondays. Yeah, they're the worst. No worries, man. Everything will be all right. (laughs) Yeah, man. Well, the ad's got people talking. Some say it's racist. Others just think it's funny. Jamaica's tourism minister likes it. He says the ad will probably boost tourism. So for today's GeoQuiz, we want you to name a famous Jamaican neighborhood in the capital. It's considered the place where rock steady and reggae began. It's somewhere in between a shanty town and a cultural mecca. Can you name the neighborhood? The answer's coming up in a few.
Let me tell you now about another ad campaign that's ruffled feathers this week. The tagline here is, don't come to Britain. At least that's what the rumored ad campaign would like Romanians and Bulgarians to think. The campaign hasn't gone live yet. It's just one of a slew of possible ideas that the British government is considering to slow immigration from Romania and Bulgaria when travel restrictions are lifted next year. But Romanians are striking back with an ad campaign of their own. Mihai Gongu is the creative director and copywriter at GMP, which produced some cheeky comebacks. Mihai, uh, start by sharing some of the slogans that you've come up with this week. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were trying our hand at, at, at British humor. And some of the lines were, for instance, Charles has bought a house here in Romania, and Harry has never been photographed naked once. You know? <laughs> well, that's pretty good. <laughs> or, for instance, you know, uh, our draft beer is less expensive than your bottled water, and, and so on. So there are a lot of possible arguments why they should consider to come over to Romania instead, you know, because it's we, we may not like it in Britain, as they, they are saying, but they will love it in Romania, I can guarantee you. And Romania is also bragging in your campaign that uh, you've got millions of women who look like Kate Middleton and even more who look like her sister. Exactly. <laughs> so what's been the reaction in Romania? In the first 24 hours, I think 300,000 Romanians have seen the posters and, and commented on them and shared them and so on. So that's quite impressive, I think. And you think those strong numbers are a reaction to the, the rumors of the British ad campaign? Yes, I do. I think our campaign started to like start a bit of a bushfire and to get the Romanian pride going on. And we actually made an online generator where people could make their own posters. How did you feel yourself, not as an advertising person, but as a Romanian, when you heard about the proposed British campaign and this tagline, don't come to Britain? Was it insulting? I wouldn't say it was insulting, as it was, you know, a bit of inspiring, you know. We felt that it's high time that Romanians give a prompt answer and, you know, they try to be the fighting partner in this image war, you know, because typically the, the way that we are depicted in some of the media in, in Europe, a bit negative, you know. So we were trying to defend also the decent, honest, hardworking Romanians all over Europe who are paying their taxes and doing a, a decent job, you know. So the campaign has gone viral, and Romanians have even started posting their own slogans on Facebook. Tell us what some of those are. My favorite was something like, if you, if you come over to Romania, in centimeters, you'll be taller, in kilograms, thinner, and so on, you know, because you are playing with this conversion unit. I mean, it's not like you need to start a campaign. It's gone viral, as we said, on its own. Is Romania ready to receive all those guys in search of the millions of Kate Middletons you've got there? <laughs> yes, and the, the, the campaign has just started, and you'll see some nice surprise in the, in the near future, you know. We actually genuinely invite the, the British to come over here, and we can welcome them, no problem. It's a big country, Romania, after all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Brits are saying, stay away, but you're saying, that's okay, come visit us instead. Exactly, yeah, exactly. They were saying you won't like it here, their tagline. And the answer was, okay, we may not like Britain, but you will love Romania. <laughs> okay. Mihai Gongu, creative director and copywriter at GMP in Bucharest, Romania. Thanks so much. Thank you so much as well. Let's get back to that Volkswagen Super Bowl ad now. You don't really expect to hear a white dude from Minnesota speaking Jamaican patois, do you? Hey, Dave, you're from Minnesota, right? Yes, I. The land of 10,000 lakes. You know what this room needs? A smile. Who want to come with I? 
<laughs> kind of funny, but some critics wonder if a white actor mimicking a laid-back black Jamaican is more offensive than anything else. Karen Madden-James is a journalist with Radio Jamaica in Kingston. How does the accent in the ad strike you, Karen? It's Jamaican patois, but does it sound like the speech of ordinary Jamaicans? <laughs> not really. It's not very authentic, not to our ear at least. So the initial reaction is one of humor. Most people on hearing it the very first time, they laugh. Mm. They they laugh, but they see it as an American white man <laughs> trying to speak Jamaican patois. And, and what do Jamaicans think of the politically correct reaction here in the U.S. that, you know, the ad smacks of, you know, racial stereotypes? Maybe there are shades of a stereotypical reaction in that, you know, Jamaicans are seen as lazy and that we are laid back kind of people that just wake up every morning and smoke weed and go to the beach. But that's a further analysis. That's not the immediate reaction that comes to people's mind when they see the ad. You know, so it has taken to the talk shows and people have been talking about it on radio, even analyzing the reaction by the Americans. You know, the call for VW to withdraw it is seen as an overkill. So, yes, some stereotypical elements, but not to the extent of being racist. It seems to have hit a nerve. I, I, I read a comment from a white Jamaican comedian in London who said, we're just glad to have a Jamaican news story that doesn't involve ganja and gangsters. Has that touristy view of Jamaica also come up in the conversations you're hearing? It really does, because, as you said, the one-sided view of us, whenever American or international media attention is turned to Jamaica, it usually is because of some negativity. It's usually people dying, people shooting, violence. So, yes, it's like a respite from that normal steady diet of violence that Jamaicans are portrayed into. Look here, they are focusing on our language, and our language mm-hmm. is part of what defines us. And mm-hmm. because 90% of Jamaicans speak Jamaican Pato or Jamaican Creole, and a lot of people who speak Jamaican Creole are made to feel that they are speaking an inferior language. So here it is now, big international firm, VW, on the biggest watched stage on television, the NFL, are going to be using this ad. So people see that as a positive more than a negative. Karen, I guess if there is a center of Jamaican patois, it may be the answer to our geo-quiz today, and that would be Trenchtown, one of Kingston's better-known neighborhoods. And I know there is Bob Marley's old home in Trenchtown, but is it the kind of neighborhood that's getting any tourists these days? Are they welcome there? Yes, um, of course, you know that when tourism is marketed internationally, it's usually for beaches and coconut trees and so on. Trenchtown has now accepted that, hey, Maybe we should start inviting people to come and see us, to come and see Jamaicans live in another way. That tourism is not just white sand beaches, but it's also actual living, breathing people, sitting down, having a conversation, playing football, playing music. Karen Madden-James, a journalist with Radio Jamaica in Kingston. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for talking with me, Mike. And you can watch that VW ad and also hear the latest edition of our language podcast, The World in Words. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. Ahead on the world, the pictures of a young French photojournalist who died in Syria. Also, the extraordinary efforts to protect an endangered species of rhino in Kenya. We've actually got four of the last seven northern white rhino in the entire world in existence. Uh, And those animals actually have their own 24-hour armed guard to protect against poaching. And soon, a drone might protect them as well. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health. 
preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Many journalists have died covering the Arab uprisings. Last year, 17 were killed in Syria alone. One of them was award-winning French photojournalist Rémy Oshlik. He was 28 years old. Oshlik documented the revolutions in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. Then last year, he headed out to Syria. He made it to Homs late one night as the city was under heavy shelling. The next day, on February 22nd, Oshlik was killed when a rocket hit the house he was holed up in with several other journalists. American reporter Marie Colvin also died in the attack. One of Oshlik's colleagues is photojournalist Karim Ben Khalifa. He's just published a book of Remy Oshlik's photographs from the Arab Spring. It's called Revolutions. Ben Khalifa describes himself as a conflict photographer. I've covered a lot of conflict those last 15 years. And like most of us doing this job, I think Remy had a sense of purpose. He's been photographing with a lot of emotions and managed to channel those emotions into his photography. He was someone good. He was someone young, passionate and compassionate. And as I explained for Remy, and I think that's valid for a lot of us, is the motivation we have there is very unclear. But we, we feel we need to go there. We feel we need to photograph. We have this ability to transport people into stories, into realities. And, and photography is such a strong medium that you can speak to people in Japan, in Africa, in, here in the U.S. You can speak to basically anyone who is photographed. So I think it's very important to record and document what's happening in the world. And not everyone is able to go to a war. So for the people who have that ability, they should do it. They should do it for the sake of the others. Now, you spoke with Remy a lot about what motivated him. If you had to describe him, what kind of guy was he? Someone very shy, someone very humble, extremely humble. He would have ate to be in the center of the attention. As a story, Le Monde was contacting journalists on the ground in Libya just to see what were the experience there. Le Monde is a big, big newspaper in France, very serious. And when they called Remy Oshlik to give his account, he just said, is it to talk about me or is it to talk about the Libyans? And it was about him, about his experience, and he said, sorry, I'm here for the Libyans. So wow. if you want to talk about them, I'll be happy. So it shows that the young photographers would pull out of this kind of uh, opportunities to talk about himself and his work. It was about the people, and I think that's a quality you need to have to do that. Now, this exhibit at the Art Institute of Boston and book of Remy's photos, they depict the Arab uprising, the Arab Spring. It's called Revolutions, and you kind of get the sense that he began shooting uh, the revolution in Tunisia as it began, and then he got caught up in it, on to Tahrir Square in Cairo, then Libya, and finally Syria. What did he make of the uprising? I think the uprising, no journalist has predicted what would have happened and the domino effect of all those countries. So he tagged along that story and stick to it in a very beautiful way. He was with the people. He was feeling the aspiration. He's been, you know, through tremendous experiences and huge amount of danger. But he stick to that story because he wanted to tell the story of those people mm. and pay the dearest price his life. 
I mean, we've seen so many photographs uh, come out of the Arab uprising, from Instagram to portraits. Um, but what's really striking with Remy Oshlik's pictures is his dedication to the craft of photography. I think of the victorious Libyan rebels on the tank. Uh, it's kind of like the, the light in that picture makes it feel like a painting, or the man in the violent protest in Tahrir Square on his knees and fingers aloft in peace signs. How much was he a journalist? How much was he an artist? Ah, there is no line there. You know, art is something that is perceived by the others. It depends on your own motivation. I would never assume that Remy would have thinks of himself as an artist. He was a journalist. He was a witness. Now, if people decide to look at it and find art and find emotions and, and classify it this way, it belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to him. Now, there are three photos in the book that were actually recovered from Remy's camera just after he was killed. They were recovered by photographer William Daniels, who was also in Syria. So here are the pictures. I mean, these were shot February 21st last year, and on February 22nd, uh, Remy was hit by a rocket and killed instantly. When you look at these pictures now, Karim, what do you see, knowing what you know would happen 24 hours later? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it is terrible to put um, what, the fate of Remy with his photographs. I don't think he would have liked people to kind of imagine the stories that could go with that, but yes, this is a photograph of a funeral, and that his last photograph was photographing other people dying for a cause. He was this one features like 20 men, uh, hands crossed, just looking at this coffin in the night. Yeah, and it, it is a tribute to himself. This one, man in a keffiyeh, a red keffiyeh, in the dark, you see just the head of his rifle kind of popping up over his shoulder. It's almost like a ghost. Yeah. Yeah, those last photographs, Remy Oshlik, they are still very haunting for anyone who knew him or anyone who knows that story. I mean, everyone who knew Remy was deeply disturbed by his death. He was young, a rising star, they say, fearless, and, and many said the future was his. This, for example, is from William, photographer William Daniels, uh, who wrote, His death affected me a lot. He was becoming a little famous. I was sure he was about to work with magazines he dreamed of working for, like Time. We were excited about getting to Syria. I thought, okay, we're here. We've come for this, to be inside Bab Amr. There was no time to think. Maybe we'd made a mistake coming. So, Karim, what do you think? Was it a mistake for Remy to go there to Homs, to Bab Amr? No, it wasn't a mistake. I mean, everyone going at a war knows he can get injured, can get killed. It's part of the decision. Remy was definitely not unaware of the danger. It is sad, but this is how he decided to live, and this is how he decided to die. And I think we can only be inspired by the commitment he has to the people. He paid with his life, but uh, no, it was definitely not a mistake. Karim, thank you very much. My pleasure. The book is titled Revolutions. It's by the late photographer Remy Oshlik. We were speaking with his friend and photojournalist Karim Ben Khalifa. Thank you very much for coming in, Karim. Thank you very much to you. Remy Oshlik's photos of the Arab Spring are currently on exhibit at the Art Institute of Boston. We have some of that amazing work, including that vivid photo of Libyans standing on the army tank I mentioned at theworld.org. The Latino population in the Midwest has soared in recent years. Many of the newcomers are from Mexico. They often find work at food processing plants, and it's grueling work. So some look to return to what they did back home in Mexico, farming. But when it comes to farming here in the U.S., they bump up against cultural and language barriers. Anna Boyko Wyrock reports from Missouri now on a new project to support the immigrant farmers along the way. Every evening after work, Antonio Barrido takes care of the kids. 
Barrido and his wife raise goats and cattle in southwest Missouri. Two goats just gave birth, and Barrido bottle feeds the babies. One baby goat tries to squirm away, but Barrido holds him tight. Barrido is from central Mexico, but lived in California for years. Then, a decade ago, he moved to Missouri. He says his wife liked it here. It was calm, no traffic, no street gangs. For years, Barrido ran a Tex-Mex restaurant, but then sold it. Now, he's a budding cattle and goat farmer with more than 100 acres of land. Animals are beautiful, he says. Latino farm owners aren't new in places like California and Texas, but not so in Missouri, where Latino-led farms represent just a tiny slice of farms overall. And they're small operations, with many immigrant farmers still working a second job to get by. But a new project started this year to support aspiring immigrant farmers in Nebraska and Missouri. It's funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. One of the project's organizers is Stephen Janetta with the University of Missouri Extension. You're seeing an aging population and a lot of the younger folks in the labor market that are interested in farming tend to be folks from Latin America. So our programs really need to be designed to help them. On Saturdays at a local library, trainers coach farmers on making business plans, networking, and applying for loans. Hopes are that some farmers will become leaders and pass along what they learn. Farmer Cirilo Salas is one of the trainees. On a recent morning, he delivers breakfast to his flock of sheep. He's a natural at it, having worked farms all his life, from childhood in Mexico. But keeping livestock here is different, he says. In Mexico, they just let the animals graze freely, Salas says. But here, the animals are fenced in, and Salas has to buy feed. It's pricey. Two years ago, when the big drought hit, Salas nearly lost everything and had to sell most of his flock. He started working at a feed company to get by. And even though Salas is in the U.S. legally, seeking out government support intimidated him. Farming is a, a difficult profession. Russ Neal is a USDA loan agent. He helps farmers recover from bad weather and get loans for land and equipment. He's also part of the immigrant training project. Neal says too often the language barrier creates a distance between himself and the Latino farmers. Because you want to be able to explain in an understandable way and uh, you know, any time that, that you're not able or you're not sure you're able to do that, it is certainly a little frustrating. Immigrant farmers can also face discrimination. The USDA is now compensating women and Latino farmers across the nation who were unfairly denied loans in the 1980s and 90s. For farmer Antonio Barrido, operating a farm is more than a business venture. It's a source of pride. He once picked fruit as a teenager in California. Now, middle-aged, he just bought a new tractor. Barrido remembers when they delivered the tractor to his day job at an auto body shop. When he went out to sign for it, his boss looked at him, shocked. You're the one who bought the tractor, he asked? And for farmer Cirilo Salas, he hopes to be his own boss and farm full-time. He says he'd throw away his watch and work according to the sun. 
For The World, I'm Anna Boyko-Wyrock in Barry County, Missouri. Head to Antonio Barrito's cattle and goat farm. Anna sent us pictures from Missouri. They're at theworld.org. A word of caution for poachers. Beware the eye in the sky. The latest weapon against illegal ivory hunting in Kenya is unmanned aircraft. Conservation groups and governments across Africa have been struggling to police the poachers and protect the animals. But the stretches of land they patrol are enormous. So a wildlife conservancy in Kenya has purchased a drone to keep an eye on its threatened residents. The Conservancy crowdsourced $45,000 to help buy the drone. Rob Breer is with the Old Pejeta Conservancy in Kenya. Breer says the drone will help keep an eye on endangered species at Old Pejeta, including 110 rhinos. We actually have um, quite a number of varieties of rhino. We've actually got four of the last seven northern white rhino in the entire world in existence. Uh, And those animals actually have their own 24-hour armed guard to protect against poaching. The rest of them are very much spread around the conservancy. But, you know, we know roughly where their sort of patches are. So we'll be able to focus our drone flights and missions where the rhinos mostly um, spend their time. Wow, just four out of seven of the world's white rhinos there. Um, What about the other rhinos? Are they equally uh, threatened? Yeah, I mean, equally threatened. I mean, the, the northern whites are a subspecies of the of the white rhino. Um, but the other ones, you know, at the moment, I would say that uh, rhino are facing something of a poaching onslaught. You know, a lot of our sister conservancies right next door have been losing rhino regularly over the last few months. We can take our eye off the ball for one second, and we really worry that we're going to lose one of ours. Mm. So the drone is going to be your eye in the sky. Who's going to be the eyes on the ground looking at what the drone's looking at? Well, one of the big things we've tried to focus on is maximum simplicity. You know, we can't afford to have a sort of fully qualified pilot sitting in the seat in HQ. So what we've got is a a very simple ground control system that's very much like a sort of Google Earth interface point and click. And what we'll have is one of our trained members of staff sitting behind a laptop operating it. But it's incredibly simple. So with this drone, you spot poachers, presumably closing in on one of your rhinos. Then what do you do? Well, you know, for us, we've kind of seen the drone benefits in three stages. You know, the first stage for me is just sheer deterrence factor. You know, and people know that there's an eye in the sky. They're far less likely to try um, any poaching in the first place. After that, for us, it's about observation. So as you rightly say, if an incident takes place, you know, our drone can do about 125 kilometers an hour, so we can get it there very, very quickly. And that means we can guide our rangers in on the incident. And actually, by having an eye in the sky for them, it allows us to look after their protection and security as well. And then ultimately, we don't want it to just be about those poaching incidents. We see this as a chance to to track the animals, collect some behavioral data, and even in the long run to help us with our tourism activities and even things like visitor traffic flow and that kind of thing. Are there poachers that you can identify from the air, do you think? Our drone is equipped with a 20 times zoom Sony block camera, so a really very high resolution, and we expect to be able to zoom in on faces from a reasonable altitude. So, you know, we do obviously have... Uh, individuals that uh, we believe are involved in that kind of thing and we'll be keeping track. Um, But ultimately, you know, we are not the same as the military. We're not going for strike capability or anything along those lines. Uh, For us, it's about, as I say, deterrence and observation first and foremost. So poachers are known to be pretty ruthless and determined. Are you worried at all about poachers shooting down your drone? Well, you know, at the end of the day, the drone is only about 10 feet long. So uh, it flies at about 100 kilometers an hour at a reasonable altitude. So you're going to have to have someone who's quite a crack shot to be able to bring something that small down. Rob, are you focusing on other animals or, or just rhinos? 
No, no, very much other animals. Olpetsta is home to a number of endangered species. So, so for example, the Grevy zebra, um, of which there are only uh, relatively few left in the world. So for us, we're quite keen to chip and track a number of different species. And as I say, it's not just about protecting them. Hopefully that will give us some insights into animal movements and behavior in the long run. Rob Breer, head of strategy and innovation for the Olpegeta Conservancy in Kenya. And a drone to track endangered species is a great innovation, Rob. Thanks for speaking with us. No problem. Thank you. And this is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's a tough time for Irish pubs. Businesses weigh down, especially in rural areas. Pub owners say longtime customers are staying home. Stricter laws have them worried they'll be arrested for drunk driving on the way back from the pub. So owners and their lobbying group came up with a plan. Loosen the drunk driving laws. As John Sepulveda reports, the idea is actually catching on with rural Irish politicians. It doesn't look like much, but Mary Ward's is a legendary country pub. The building is an old, one-story, three-bedroom house on a windy, single-lane country road. Yet this pub used to be one of the most popular in all of Galway County famous for singing sessions, impromptu target shooting, and other forms of good-humored debauchery. Oh, well, it would be a lively pub. It's, it's one of these places you, you feel you can come to the pub on your own, and you'll always meet somebody to have a bit of fun with. James Avery is a bartender here. There's going to be characters there that come in, and they'll be, be joking, laughing, singing. There's an old guy who comes here, and he, he brings an accordion. It's characters that make a place like, you know. This past Sunday, nobody played the accordion. Avery says Sundays used to be busy, but business has just been dragging the past couple years. The biggest hit, say pub owners, were new drunk driving laws created in 2005. Jerry Rafter heads the Vintners Federation, which represents pubs. Rafter says it's easy to understand the business hit. Just look at the typical Irish farmer. And he might spend five hours in a night playing cards or chatting with his neighbor or maybe supping over two or three pints and drive home, maybe on a tractor, maybe on a bike, whatever. He's not going out anymore. We need to keep the fabric of rural Ireland alive, and we feel that the pub is a very, very important part to play in, in that community role. And some rural politicians agree. They're pushing local councils for looser drunk driving laws and would allow local police or even bartenders to issue rural driving permits. Those drivers could have up to three drinks legally in their system. Kerry Councillor Danny Healy-Ray says because rural roads have lower speed limits and are less busy, slightly intoxicated drivers could still travel safely. The farmer or the lonely isolated person, they should be treated differently to the other general public that have, we'll say, more means of transport. After all, Healy-Ray says, buses and taxis don't come to these rural villages. But at one time, drunk driving crashes did. Before the tougher drunk driving laws, there were about 400 crash-related fatalities each year on the roads. And about 70% of those happened in rural areas between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m., prime drinking times. Not one involved a bicycle or tractor. Last year, there were 162 fatalities in the entire country, a record low. And with that, the message from the government has been, get real. That the social lives of farmers don't trump the possibility of drunk driving deaths. Alan Shatter is Ireland's justice minister. There is no question of this government, or indeed I don't believe any future government, facilitating individuals drinking in excess of the blood alcohol limits. Reducing fatalities on our roads must always take precedence over promoting the social consumption of alcohol. 
Despite this veto promise, Cary County counselors voted to let rural residents drive a bit drunker. They would allow rural residents to go to the police and get special permits to drive slightly intoxicated. And at least three other rural counties, including Galway, are considering similar measures to allow pub goers to get special permits that would allow them to drive with a higher blood alcohol level. But bartender James Avery says this wouldn't lure more customers out to the rural pubs. It's just everything has gone too regimental now, and you've been told to be home at such and such a time. You're, you can't drink and drive. You're relying on somebody else to get you to the pub and from the pub. And people feel like, you know, they, why bother? Stay at home. Or, as one farmer at the pub put it, who's going to be dumb enough to go to the police station Tell the police they'd like to drink and drive and ask for a special permit to do so. For The World, I'm John Sepulveda in Galway, Ireland. Finally today, we head to a park in Havana, Cuba. It's not just a park. It's more of a giant ice cream parlor where state-subsidized scoops are dished up daily. Marissa Neff recently paid a visit. Havana's Vedado neighborhood is like a time capsule of antique Chevys, uniformed school kids, and patinaed colonial mansions. Since 1966, it's also been the home of the legendary Copelia. It's a park with multiple ice cream stands that take up a large block on one of the city's main arteries, La Rampa. People start lining up at 10 in the morning, and on steamy afternoons, the lines can stretch well past the park gates. But at four cents a scoop, it's well worth the wait. And habaneros of all ages can be found eating upwards of 10 scoops per visit. It's a treat, but it also provides a caloric boost to those who subsist on state rations of beans, rice, eggs, and bread. The phenomenon began with Fidel Castro's own love of ice cream. When the park first opened, there were 54 flavors, including offerings like avocado and tomato. Pedro Zamora manages one of the lines in the park, and he says Copelia produces the best ice cream around, though he hasn't had an opportunity to do any taste testing outside of Cuba. And these days, the park usually only has two flavors. On this day, guava and strawberry. It's very creamy and made with quality ingredients. Problems with the U.S. embargo make it difficult to get materials, but Copelia has always maintained a high quality. It's the cathedral of ice cream. The park was named for Castro's longtime aide, Celia Sanchez. She was known for her love of dance, and Copelia was her favorite ballet. The Copelia Ice Cream Park has also influenced Cuban pop culture. There's a popular salsa move bearing its name, and the parlor played a starring role in one of Cuba's best-loved films, Strawberry and Chocolate. Copelia's enduring popularity is a source of great pride for Cubans. And there's talk that Cuba might export the brand. Last March, Cuba's close ally, Venezuela, announced that it's planning a factory to produce Copelia ice cream, though it's not clear where or what flavors. 
For The World, I'm Marissa Neff. You can see a slideshow of photos that Marissa took at Coppelia. There's also a video of the salsa dance move named after the park. It's all at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for joining us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.